special self-quarantine stay-at-home episode of the Brando Cast. And today, through the power of Squadcast, I am talking to my friend Abby Crutchfield on the other side of the United States of America, where she is in an undisclosed location somewhere on the eastern seaboard. And let a me top this. secret bunker. It's a top secret bunker as she and her family work on very secret and sundry things. Now, let me just say this about my friend, Abby Crutchfield. We all hate Twitter. We all hate the fact that we are on Twitter all day long, <laughs> just filling our veins with garbage <laughs> about Trump and getting into fights with people who are probably bots generated somewhere in Russia. However, the upside of Twitter is that you get to meet really amazing people around the country. And sometimes you bridge the gap and you meet them in person. I have had the pleasure of meeting Abby Crutchfield in person here in the city of Los Angeles when she has come out on her world domination tour. She is a writer, an actor, a stand-up a relatively new mom and an all-around supernova. Ladies and gentlemen, Abby Crutchfield. Thank you very much. Well, I, I feel great, but I watched an episode of the Berenstain Bears with my toddler today, and the episode was about junk food, and we were realizing all, they were realizing all the junk that they eat in a day, like chips and soda and sweets, and I think I'm such a saint for not allowing soda in the house, but uh, when I started talking to her, I was like, oh my gosh, I give her like a, a sweet treat, quote unquote, every single day, and I give myself multiple sweet treats every single day. And so uh, I started putting things out of the cupboard the way they did in the cartoon. And she caught me put, taking cookies out. And she was like, but cookies are good for me. And apples are not good, right? Like she's <laughs> trying to influence. <laughs> like you're going to get rid of those apple things, right? And just keep the cookies. So that if you're going to clean out your cabinet, do not do it in front of a child. Uh, I would imagine that they are relatively well-made, healthy cookies versus the cookies that I grew up with in the 70s, like Oreos, Hydrox, Nutter Butters, and whatnot. Correct? They, they are truly Oreos. I'm now trying to pawn them off on my neighbor. I'm like, you guys want a, want a fun time for your kids? Take my Oreos off my hands. No, but but Oreos are dairy-free, which is why I, I thought they were healthy for me. I was like, well, I'm lactose intolerant, but these are great for me. So, Well, they're, they're, they're dairy-free because they're made with pure... <laughs> Just hydrogenated. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, now I can never do a commercial for Oreos. Uh, unless this is the tipping point for them to change their formula. Uh, for Oreos to go artisanal mm-hmm. and organic? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I am aware of where you sort of dwell in the in the world, and mm-hmm. I would imagine that there might be a place not too far from you that is doing gourmet Oreos. Am I wrong? I'm sure someone is. I definitely know of a place that does their own ringdings. I forget what they call them. <laughs> ring wrongs. Because, you know, like there's a ding dong and there's a ring ding. I think right. if I was going to make a, a knockoff, it'd have to be a ring wrong. Uh, and what would you call a Twinkie? What would you call an artisanal Twinkie? <laughs> well, a stinky, but that's just because I'm there you go. I'm irritating and I like puns. And I would make sure it looked like poop. That's a ho-ho. <laughs> That's right. It already exists. It, it does already exist. I mean, and the spin on the ho ho was the 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 swirl inside, rather than just shoving that white frosting inside the chocolate. Which, if you cake. watch, yeah, if you watch like a British Bake Show or something, you realize how hard it is to turn a cake. I don't know what they're doing with the ho hos, and they've been doing it well for so many years. But when I see an actual person try to roll up a cake with cream inside it, it's a disaster every time. So uh, that is hysterical. I have just 
I have just discovered the great British Bake Off Isn't in the quarantine. So yeah. Oh, good. It's a perfect quarantine show. It's it's so binge worthy. Oh my God. But it's also, it's just life affirming and nice. <laughs> and after putting up with all the nonsense that we have to go through during the day, mm-hmm. it is actually the best way to wind down at night uh, uh, and watch a bunch of decent looking Brits make some pastries. Correct? Exactly. Yes, absolutely. I love it. I like to, I, for a while was just baking a cookie. See, I, I create uh, dough balls ahead of time and then I freeze them. So I would bake two cookies at a time per episode. It was just a, it was very addictive. <laughs> What is your go-to cookie? Chocolate chip cookie. That's the one I love making. And I I think I have finally perfected my own recipe. It took me years, but I think I, I finally nailed it. Can you tell me if there is a secret ingredient or a twist or an element that you throw in there? Well, yes, because it's like, there has to be. Even if you're not trying, if, even if you try to duplicate the Nestle Toll House recipe, there's going to be something off, like the quality of the butter you're using or the freshness of your egg. You know, like, are you getting regular eggs? Are you getting, you know, your neighbor's eggs from their Brooklyn uh, coop? So uh, little things like that are going to change it. Like what kind of vanilla you use, what kind of salt you use. So the real main thing I change (laughs) is that I do not consume refined white sugar unless I'm sneaking it into my diet via Oreos that I've lied to myself about. Okay. Because I'm a dude. Yeah. Refined white sugar is just the down and dirty Kroger Safeway bag of table sugar. Okay, thank you. The sugar that was supposed to be meant for your table. This was table sugar comes from a time where everybody had it and it was just like expected. Can you imagine seeing a table without sugar? That's how that's how it got its name. You need tape sugar on your table. What about sugar in the raw? Is is that just a joke? Is sugar in the raw just a joke? I don't know if I'm playing myself with any of these sugar alternatives. They might all do the same thing in the body, but I think sugar in the raw and coconut sugar, like I definitely have tried both. They're brown, so they they make me think that they haven't been stripped of all their nutrients. I think really what you're supposed to do is use a machete and hack off a sugar cane and just like chew on a bamboo stick (laughs) or the the sugar cane stock, I guess you would say. Like that's the best way to get sugar, I think. And again, somewhere in your extended neighborhood, there is someone who is making chocolate chip (laughs) cookies with Pure cane, mm-hmm. right off, just chopping it right off the, the stock, correct? They are. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't seen it in a cooking show yet, where they're like, just reach for your cane of sugar that you have in your backyard. So, uh, yeah. Any, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, cookies. That's my recipe. Is like, I mess up the sugar, but I'll buy whatever milk, I'm sorry, whatever vanilla eggs and butter are cheapest in my grocery store. So I'm probably sacrificing on quality there, too, but who knows? And how are you guys, hand, how are you guys cooking during the pandemic? Uh, my cooking is not improved. I thought I was going to be adventurous, but there was just so much. You, you, you have to remember during the pandemic, like every two weeks, we would get different information about our, our safety and, you know, the health. So the earlier days were fraught with anxiety for me. And I was just barely cooking anything and just eating a lot, whatever, like a cold sandwich or chips or cereal. Like that would be my meals. And then my husband would throw down, he would actually chop vegetables where I didn't have the mental capacity to like handle chopping vegetables the first couple months. I was like, I'm not cooking. And so, um, so then I would bake a lot though. Like I would just like bake pancakes and scones. And I like to, I like to make pizza and meatballs. Like that's the one, the two things I'll cook. Well, 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 what's, what's your specialty pizza? 
pizza. What do I do? I have, I usually get the dough from a grocery store. I'm not a frozen, but I, I really don't discriminate against pizza. I love every single kind of pizza you can be made. I, even at the dollar store, there is like a frozen, a microwavable Celeste pizza for one. And I'll still like at midnight be like, yes, you're so delicious. <laughs> but, but yeah, for my pizza, I don't know. Um, I don't do anything special. I just have learned that you're supposed to like cook the vegetables ahead of time to sweat them out, like get the liquids out of them and then put them on your pie so that they don't make your pizza soft and watery. I've learned mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. How about you? Do you like to make pizza? Um, I am not a pizza maker because I don't have the stone. I don't have a pizza stone for the I oven. Have a pizza stone. Okay. Yeah, p- right. Mm-hmm. That, isn't that the key thing? You got to have a pizza stone if you're going to do homemade pizzas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a, a pizza pro. I can yeah. tell you exactly where to go for good pizza. Yeah, but uh, but I have been making a lot uh, now that New Mexican green chili is uh, available in the American Southwest, and it's a specific green chili from New Mexico, Hatch Green Chili. It is time for me to make my specialties, uh, which are a, a bunch of different New Mexican dishes. So yes. I can make a very down and dirty green chili chicken enchilada. Which sounds so good. Let me just walk everyone through this one. It's really simple. You first, you you sort of you get really good tortillas. You got to get really good tortillas. This is more like a uh, a green chili enchilada lasagna rather Mm -hmm. than rolled enchilada. So you put a you 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 pan fry the the tortillas quickly. You put them down on a sheet. Then you just put shredded chicken, Mm -hmm. and then you put a layer of cheese, Mm -hmm. and then using. Campbell's, you can either go Campbell's cream and mushroom, but I like to go Campbell's cream and potato and New Mexican green chilies. And you just make a sauce with that. And you pour that over the the shredded chicken and the cheddar cheese. And then you just repeat that pattern one or two more times. And then you just put that whole thing in the oven and boom. Yum. Okay. So with the chilies, do you have to cook them in any way before you chop them up with the soup? Well, you can get here in L.A. I'm lucky because one of my favorite green chili brands, it's called Bueno, made in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was a teenager. Uh, You can get Bueno green chilies at the Los Feliz Albertsons. And so they already come cooked and chopped. So you can just get them in a little container. You can thaw them and then you can put them in anything. I mean, you can put Mm -hmm. them over eggs. Yeah, because I remember seeing that a lot of people like to uh, char a chili first before they cook. Well, now, see, that's now you've brought up a very important point because in the next few weeks, uh, Southern California is going to get shipments of the newly harvested green chilies from New Mexico. And there you can just buy them whole, Mm. take them home. You can roast them in the oven. Three minutes on each side, you just get that black char on the chili, and then you take them out and you skin them yourself. And, uh, you know, we only get to do that a couple times a year here. So uh, that is what I am going to do. I will tell you this. You are, we, before we went on air, uh, Abby mentioned that I've got uh, longer hair now because the last time we saw each other in person and uh, had lunch at Patty's in Toluca Lake, I had short hair. Now I'm rocking long hair and I'm also probably rocking an extra 20 pounds since uh, March 9th. <laughs> Because of all the number of uh, hamburgers I have consumed, homemade hamburgers, I might say, wow. but still hamburgers. So I that's can't wait my problem. We, do, we have to do a whole other episode dedicated to cooking because we're not professionals, but we clearly have a wealth of knowledge to share with the world. I, I, and I, I will say, if people want to just get in touch with me on Twitter at BlackSab67, I'll give you some more uh, green chili uh, recipes from New Mexico. Now, Abby, my friend, it is time to play the game of the Brando cast. And what we are going to do today is we are going to talk about 
some of the artists that inspired a young Abby. Yes, artists, and inspiring artists. Alanis Nadine Morissette is a Canadian singer, songwriter, producer, and actor. Known for her emotive voice, Morissette began her career in Canada in the early 1990s. She had two mildly successful dance pop albums back then. After that initial success, and as a part of a recording deal, she moved to Holmby Hills in L.A. Quick tangent, why did you do that, Alanis? In 1995, she released Jagged Little Pill, a more rock-oriented album, which went on to sell more than 33 million copies. And to date, Alanis Morissette has sold more than 75 million records worldwide. Abby Crutchfield, tell me about your love of Alanis Morissette. Well, I didn't even know that I had seen her on You Can't Do That on Television as a child, but that must be how she seeped into my subconsciousness. Wait, whoa, whoa, time out. Okay, I bet I knew this 25 years ago, but I've killed so many brain cells since then. She was on... She was an early cast member on that show, and you can still access it. I don't know. It depends what what TV station you can stream, but I've seen recent... Recently, I've seen episodes of You Can't Do That on television. And that was the show on Nickelodeon where it was almost like Zoom, like just, was it skits, the kids doing skits? Yeah, it was a sketch, it was a sketch comedy show with two adult players and maybe four to, four to five, maybe five to ten kid actors. And you knew them by name. They all went by their first names. And yeah, they would be, they would meet in a studio and you'd return to the studio between every single sketch, you know? So yeah, you had a, you had a series of locations like there'd be the bus driver, the firing squad, the, the gross uh, restaurant with Barth Burgers. Do you remember that at all? Um, I do not because I, I think <laughs> I was, I, I will not age myself, but I will say that I was probably a little too old for you can't do that on television and would have only watched that with college friends if we were super high. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I think I, I received it years after it originally aired, but okay. it was still, it was on Nickelodeon and I was Nickelodeon uh, kid growing up. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I love the Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill album. I can't remember the first time I heard it, but I do remember owning it. I don't even remember buying CDs. Like, when do you buy CDs? I probably asked for it for a birthday present or a Christmas present. And um, and then I remember vividly like sitting in a red beanbag chair in my room and cranking her up on my boom box that had a button that said dynamic bass boost, you know, that you can push one button and suddenly you can slightly hear more drum. And so, uh, <laughs> so that was what I would do if I, I mean, I listened to her anyway when I was in a good mood, but that was what I would do if I wanted to rebel in my own home, you know, like either because homework was hard or because my mom and I got into it about something, you know? So I would just run upstairs and sit in my chair and be like, why is life? What, now, where were you questioning life? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's right. Right. A middle school in the middle of the country. Yeah, 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 a Midwesterner, and it was in a middle school that used to be a high school, so it felt very large to me, and it was, uh, I guess, racially diverse, but um, I don't know. I had seen Lean on Me as a kid, and this was like my introduction to actual metal lockers because my grade school didn't have any, so the shift from grade school where everyone's coddled and you get recess over to middle school where there are lockers slamming and a, like a fire alarm style bell ringing in between every class, I was just like, <gasps> it was so intimidating to me. So to discover her music... It, I was, yeah, I was like right at a great time where I was starting to feel deep and moody 
and like I needed to vent and yell, you know, but I didn't. So I just listened to the songs instead. <laughs> I, love I was it exactly so much. like now, this in middle school. You, you, you mean with the look and the, the hair with your signature Smiling, hair? Yeah. You have signature hair. You have, you have, it is the Abbey. Just as it's Jennifer Aniston had the Rachel, you have the Abbey. So it, it, did you have the Abbey it's, in middle school? I just have a, a mountain of, of curls, 3C curl pattern, in case there are any natural curly hair fans out there. I always, I always raked it back into a ponytail at the time, but I still would smile at everybody and try to learn everyone's name and chat them up in the halls. So I didn't look like I was not goth. I did not own anything black to wear. So <laughs> I think once I rebelled and put black nail polish on with a Sharpie, like I was like, Ooh, my pinky's black. Watch out world. Now let me say full disclosure. I will admit something to you and you will probably not be surprised nor anyone listening to this podcast because everyone knows that I'm Van Halen rush, ACDC, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so real rockers, real rockers. So, so in the, and I'm a snob. And I was way more of a snob in the year of our Lord, 1995. And Jagged Little Pill hit Los Angeles like a fucking neutron bomb. I think that actually K-Rock, 106.7 FM, which at that time was playing nothing but Nirvana and Blur and Oasis and Green Day. Well, and and all the current uh, alternative bands, and then all the the classic new wave bands that they were famous for, Depeche Mode, New Order, they played You Oughta Know, because I think that they were the first station to play it. They played that song on the hour and the half for years. So I came came to loathe the sound of, of Alanis Morissette. Again, just being a snob, being a snob, being a cool guy, and being into music that nobody else was listening to. So <laughs> just the, the super commercial success of stuff like this drove me a little batty. But I will say this, that I actually saw Alanis Morissette early on mm-hmm. at the Palladium in Los Angeles, and she was really amazing live. And that will always if I'm cool. being a brat and I see someone do something amazing live, I will always switch over and just give them props. And now currently my friend, my friend Jason Orm is in, has been in Alonis's band as her lead guitarist for quite some time. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised. I was going to say, I'm surprised you haven't yeah, crossed paths with her with your, I, your career. I, I have, I actually, I have, we have been in the same room uh, many times and I know that she treats her people great. So I have nothing but, Deep respect for her. Very but cool. 1995, Brandon Smith was a fucking brat. So I did not <laughs> open didn't have my time for that. No, I didn't. Well, what did I have time for other than just fucking off and doing karaoke at the farmer's market? That's what I had karaoke time for. Karaoke at a farmer's market. <laughs> no, car- karaoke at the farmer's market. Oh, excuse in- me. In, uh, in Los yeah. Angeles at 3rd and Fairfax. They used to have karaoke every Very Saturday fun. nights, every Saturday nights on the patio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and people would sing you ought to know at karaoke. That takes, all so, the I, time. I wasn't brave enough to do stand up until college, so that's impressive to me that as a young man you were singing out loud in front of strangers. I I I am a show off, and so the the karaoke scene at the farmers market gave me the the perfect venue to shake my butt in front of strangers nice, and nice. and and lunatics. Okay, so wait a minute, you just dropped a little you just dropped a little nugget. You didn't start doing stand up until you were in college. Yeah. Tell me about that. I was studying abroad in Italy on my way to be who knows, an interpreter 
someone who worked for the UN. I, I was going to Georgetown, so I thought I needed a, a government job or something official. And, and I really had an affinity for foreign language. I could speak French and Italian. So I was studying abroad, and we were, I guess some of the students were bored, so they declared there would be a talent show. And I didn't know what my talent would be, but I thought humor had some, needed to have something to do with it. And I always loved to do talent shows as a kid. I remember in grade school, third grade, they were like, pick something to do in front of the class and do it. And so I wrote a rap song about how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So like, I like to perform in a comfortable bubble and this was no different. This was just like, I don't know, 17 of your peers inside a villa in Italy. And so, um, I, I performed there and I graduated actually. And then we went back on campus my senior year. I founded a stand-up comedy association, but we only performed once. We just kept meeting and meeting and talking about the big show, but none of us could figure out like, how do we make it happen? Cause we were all too scared to just say, let's pick a date and write some jokes. So I finally set a date right before school ended. I performed in front of my a larger section of my peers on campus. And then when I got home, I went to the local comedy club to meet up with a, like an old high school friend. And we, there was an announcement for an open mic after the show. So I thought comedy clubs were just for seeing professional comedians. And I'm an adult now. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm over 21. I could have a drink and watch a comedy show. And so when they announced, oh, there's also an open mic, my friend at the table said, oh, you should try that because you've been making me laugh all night. Isn't that so class? Everybody always says that. Like, oh, you should do it because you're funny. And so I was like, well, it sounds super scary, but I tried to do it in college and it didn't count in my opinion. So I signed up for the, the, the comedy clubs Tuesday night, eight o'clock show where you only do three minutes for your first time. And I finally did a set. And after that night, I came back every single week. And then I picked the brains of the professionals and they were like, move to LA or New York or move somewhere where there's comedy every night. And so I moved to New York about a year after that. Let me ask two questions. What was the name of that club in Indianapolis? Crackers Comedy Club. <laughs> <laughs> is it yeah. is crack is crackers still there <laughs> is it um that particular one closed down but i think it the brand still exists there's a downtown venue too so yeah okay. fantastic uh, second question could you possibly remember any of the lines from your rap song about peanut butter Oh, I wish. No. Um, but I can tell you an approximation would be like, first you take the bread and then you spread. Don't forget the jelly. I know you want a smelly. I mean, oh my gosh. My freestyle rap has been the same since third grade. Well, <laughs> That one I wrote down. Well, uh, that was marvelous. And on that note, it's the perfect segue into our next artist, Lauren Noel Hill was born May 26, 1975. She's an American singer-songwriter and rapper from South Orange, New Jersey. She's best known for being a member of the Fugees and for her incredible solo album, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. That album won many awards and broke several sales records. Often regarded as one of the greatest rappers of all time, Hill is widely credited for breaking barriers for female rappers and for bringing hip-hop to popular music. She has influenced many artists of various genres. Lauren Hill. So amazing. I still love that album. Whereas Jagged Little Pill by Lance Morissette, it has a place in my heart, but like you said, it got played out so much. It's hard to it's hard to listen to every song. I'll probably skip a few and only listen to the ones I haven't heard in a long time. But Lauren's, I could just go top to bottom. I love it. Now, again, 
snobby Brendan, I was only listening to indie rock bands during this mm-hmm. period of time. So I missed the miseducation of Lauren Hill. But again, living here in L.A., you couldn't drive down Sunset Boulevard without seeing giant billboards for that record. I, of course, have heard the whole thing. But this is a great one for me because I just don't know much about Lauren Hill. Can you tell me anything that I should know? Well... I actually had a question for you, but what you what should you know? She was in Sister Act Two. Oh. She that was her film <laughs> cinematic debut that I remember. And um, <laughs> I lived through MTV Music Videos, and so Doop that thing was an innovative kind of music video because it was modern Lauren Hill juxtaposed against uh, Lauren Hill dressed up for the '60s, and 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 you had a split screen for the majority of the video, and it would cut from seeing couples dating in the in the 2000s or whenever that album came out and couples in the 60s. And so, and it was all very sultry. It was very black love. It was like the template for a Beyonce video with regard to black imagery and empowerment. And, and it was just very, yeah, it was very celebratory of blackness as I recall, and including the album. And it had white love Jean, I think either produced it or he had a big part in it. Cause he's talking a lot in the, in between the songs, maybe he produced all the songs. And so it was a uh, nice to see her break away from the Fugees. She was part of a trio called the Fugees. And they had some commercial mm-hmm. success. So to see her go off on her own and excel was really, really fun for me. Uh, but my now, question for you was, did- I need to know some of the names of the indie rock bands. Because I was into, like, briefly, ska or the ska influence on No Doubt. Or what was indie? Well, for me, indie rock. Oh, God. Do I have your permission to Brendan explain indie rock? <laughs> sure. Yeah, please. Because uh, my, w- uh, my friends are just so tired of hearing me talk like this, but there's mansplaining and then there's Brendan Splaining. So people listening to this podcast, you're going to get a heavy dose of Brendan Splaining right now. So indie rock is all these little independent labels that were devoted to sort of quasi punk bands and all the bands that came before Nirvana. And a lot of big cities had their own record labels. So Twin Tone in Minneapolis had the replacements in Husker Du. Uh, there was sub the early sub pop was starting in Seattle. There was a record label called SST in Southern California that had all the, all the great punk bands like black flag and the Minutemen. And so there was just an ethos of bands that were sort of doing it themselves. They were not commercial. They were not journey. They were not, they were not, they were not lover boy. Uh, they were not Van Halen. They were just like sort of punk bands that would get, that would find success on an indie label. And so for those of us who were into that kind of rock, we sort of learned to love labels. And so we knew that if Twin Tone or SST or Sub Pop had a new band, it was probably pretty great. And so you would just sort of follow uh, the, the different labels around the country. And in the mid 90s, there were, you know, after the explosion of Nirvana, mm-hmm. um, there were so many great indie rock bands in America, like Modest Mouse, Pavement guided by voices and that was the nerdy it's just record store clerk music abby that's all that it is yeah it's, so it's, it's I, know, I know i know half of the names you mentioned or i'd say a third of the names you mentioned but um so so like green day would be alternative but not indie rock because they had a big label behind them well they they started as indie they completely started as indie rock they just exploded and, okay. if, and if any band, expl- I mean, R.E.M. started as an indie rock band. Cool. They just I definitely listen to them. I listen to uh, Rage Against the Machine and Sublime and Everclear. And I don't know if I, those guys all have different sounds. So I don't know if they count. They completely count. But all those bands, like 
all those when all those bands explode, the man comes around and says, "You're going to be on a, a major label now because we're going to squeeze more money out of you." Then eventually, they'll all be put out to pasture when they when they stop delivering hits. It's tough. I almost feel like people could deliver way more hits, but then they get reined in by someone saying, "Well, there's someone younger than you we have to look at now." It's, it's so the classic tale. It's the classic tale. But I wanted to know about indie rock because I was I was definitely influenced by genres uh, like that that are that are all different, but um, you know how rock, they say rock and roll was influenced by African American culture, yes. and like you've got the early rockers. I didn't know if indie rock, grunge, alternative, like if it can all be traced back to those roots. Because Lauren Hills was like R and B. I was also like listening to SWV, TLC, and Vogue. You know, like popular R and B and old school R and B, like Luther Vandross and Anita. Uh, whoops, I always say Anita Hill is Baker, right? <laughs> which one? Which Anita? Right. Anyway. If I can jump on the soapbox for two seconds, please. Once, once you uh, American, I'm um, now I'm the Fred Armisen character on Saturday Night Live. The thing, <laughs> the thing, the thing, the thing about the American music industry is like, okay, for instance, if you took a See, band and you just don't know, you, you like if you lived, if 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 you knew me, and you could. <laughs> Look at my record, like for for okay. Here's a perfect example. The Ohio players were okay. There's Parliament and and Funkadelic. Uh, right, right, right. You just can't not mention enough. Like you can never collect your thoughts because there's so much there. Well, you know, we don't have time. But I did want to say that like my love for Lauren Hill was you know not in a vacuum. And I think that the important thing to acknowledge is like all this. As American kids, I guess we're all influenced by a ton of different music. Even if you're like me and you just hear what's on the radio as you drive to high school. Well, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the weird thing, I was born in Pittsburgh, but we moved to Albuquerque when I was 12, 13. Regular listeners of this podcast have heard this story a thousand times. But Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I don't know what Indianapolis was like in the 80s, but for me... It was me- it was a metal town. Mm. Our, our radio, we had two rock radio stations, Rock 108 and 94 Rock, and they would play the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who and Led Zeppelin. But they would also play both stations: Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Dio, Ozzy, wow. Van Halen, Rush. Uh, a lot of it because the Native American population in in New Mexico fucking loves heavy metal. So I was going to these big concerts in Albuquerque that were literally a third white, a third New Mexican, and a third Native American. So my the foundation of my love of music actually sort of comes from hard rock and metal in Albuquerque, and that's why I gravitated more to punk and then indie rock. Cool. You know, if I never I, heard of a culture described as New Mexican. Like, well, I, I mean, born and raised. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a, the, the the Latino culture in New Mexico is so mm-hmm. it's so specific, and they they have their own their own cuisine, their own language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those families that have just lived in very specific parts of New Mexico for generations and generations, and that culture loved metal uh, as well. So, so I was cool. just hearing. That's what I was hearing. So the the noise right. that I hear in my head is just sort of like. Zzz, and I was that's I, from attending so many live concerts too. Well, that's <laughs> well, I, I, well, what I hear when I fall asleep at night is Ooh. <laughs> it's a miracle right. that I it's a miracle that I can still hear blah 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 blah. All right, let's march that's, on to the that's next. That's my one. love for Lauren Hill. Next, I love it. Well, someone else that Abby threw out, someone who has a new record out right now that is crushing it, ladies and gentlemen. Fiona Apple is an American singer-songwriter, pianist, and poet from New York City. An eight-time Grammy Award nominee and one-time winner. Apple's albums have reached the top five 
on the U.S. charts in four consecutive decades. Classically trained on piano, Apple began composing her own songs when she was eight years old. Her debut album, Title, contains songs written when she was 17, and that was released in 1996. That album received a Grammy Award for the best female rock vocal performance for the single Criminal. She has sold over 10 million albums worldwide and received numerous awards and nominations. Her fifth studio album, the brand new Fetch the Bolt Cutters, was released in 2020 to widespread acclaim, and it is great. Fiona Apple, tell me about your love of Fiona Apple. I can't wait to listen to Fetch the Bolt Cutters. I didn't even know she had a new album out. Um, I've seen her in concert, and I just realized that. I saw Lauryn Hill's Miseducation of Lauryn Hill in concert in Indianapolis, and I don't know where I was where I saw Fiona Apple. Probably Indianapolis as well. Yeah, my sister got me both of those tickets. And who opened for Lauryn Hill back in the day was John Legend. That was my very first time seeing him. And I don't remember who opened for Fiona that year, but uh, just I wish I had seen Alanis because then it would be, I would have picked the perfect trio. But there are so few people I've actually seen live that I forgot that I had seen her. So that's what I remember seeing. It was so cool to actually have somebody whose album I've heard over and over again, then see them live. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir right now, mm-hmm. but um, but it was just so rare for me. And then um, what else did I like about her? I liked. She was like the one person, and I forget the genre, but there was uh, a a wave of women like Tori Amos, maybe Indigo Girls, Liz Fair. I never heard a song by them. <laughs> I just would hear friends singing their songs, but I never like sat and listened to an album or owned an album. So I always felt like on the outside of whatever that movement was of like empowered women writing their own music. Well, it's go on. It's Lilith Fair music. Lil- yeah, exactly. And and I never attended a Lilith Fair, but I had you know. And I, I didn't have enough LGBTQ friends to invite me to one. So I just feel like it would have been up to me to get my own ticket. And <laughs> I was such a homebody. So I missed out totally on, um, on these women. And now I hear them every now and then. There's another one, Regina. Regina, remember her? Specter. Regina, Regina Specter, Specter was big back mm-hmm. then. Fiona was my, the way I felt in with those friends because they had also heard of Fiona. So I could, I could keep up conversation when it came to that. And I, and I liked what she did with her lyrics. She was very, she was less moody and more, what was, how would you describe it? She had such a smoky voice. Atmospheric. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Creepy. She was like the precursor to, um, (laughs) who's the woman who I feel like died at a high school prom and she's just a ghost singing. Um, Carrie. (laughs) No, no, but people love her. Oh, she's, why am I messing up her name? That girl, she's like still famous right now, but she, she is a human ghost. Hang on. Billie Eilish? Who, no, but she's, she's before Billie Eilish. She's a few years older than her. She looks like Emma Roberts sometimes. Okay. That now we're, we are so far off the, the rail. Oh, she me. sings that summer, summertime sadness. Who sings summertime sadness? I have no idea. I'll tell you right now. We do have a little computers in our pockets that can tell us all kinds of things on the fly. Lana Del Rey. Lana, Lana Del, Del Rey, Rey. Mm-hmm. Is, is just a haunted, she has a haunting voice. And I think Fiona also did. I kind of feel like Fiona Apple almost, I mean, she really went to town on the, the haunted voice in the mm-hmm. 90s that was sort of part of the allure yeah, uh, yeah yeah nobody else is doing that nobody else was doing that and now it feels like there's a lot of girls singing like this that's just who that's are just, they I, I don't i don't know because now i'm old so now i'm not allowed to <laughs> listen to stuff so now i'm li- actually i'm spending my time 
listening to a lot of 60s music. That's how I've been relaxing Fun. lately because of the power of the internet. And I've been collecting, and again, I've been collecting Motown and British Invasion and Bubblegum and psychedelic music and just having the best time because we I never heard the complete archives of Motown on the radio. You always heard yeah. the Supremes and the Temptations right. and Marvin Gaye, but the album cuts are driving me crazy. And that's the truth for every other kind of band from the 60s. So that's, that's, very that's what cool. I'm doing right now. Nerding. I out. was thinking, I was thinking about my grandma who was born in 1916. So she would be a teenager, what, in the 30s. And like imagining that music coming on the radio, whatever it was. I'm trying to think of a 30s song like it's delightful, it's delicious, it's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> and that being the rebellious thing you're listening to. <laughs> right. Your parents are like, turn that crap off. Well, wasn't it anything that made them dance that was scary? I, oh, right. Exactly. So it's just it's just funny how every era teenagers will look to something as like, you don't get it, parents. And and so to like rediscover that music, like you said, bubblegum pop, even just like pop music. Having just picturing an adult of that era being like, what is this garbage? Well, now I'm listening to ABBA. I mean, I wasn't allowed to. I love ABBA. ABBA is incredible. <laughs> Full disclosure, I fucking love ABBA. We were, we were we were trained by the nuns at school to hate ABBA, but now I fucking love ABBA. I love wow. pop music. Wait, what were the nuns saying that they were? Oh, the nuns. The nuns were saying to everything. Drugs or sex? Okay. Gate, gateway to everything. Gateway to bad. Yeah, ABBA um, in the shower. Nothing let like me ask you a, a, a weird question. You mentioned that you went to school at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is an insane place to see music. When you were in college, were you going, would you and your friends go out to clubs? Would you go to see live music? Yes. Like I said, like every probably year of my life, I saw one person live, but I'm nowhere near like the ticket holders. I have a friend who has seen Dave Matthews Band like 45 times. It's insane. <laughs> um, they do it. Like she, she just it recently on Instagram, shared a photo of her through the years with her friends and like all her relationships are built around these concerts. Um, I saw Weedus. Do you remember Weedus? I don't remember Weedus. Who was Weedus? Did they sing Teenage Dirtbag? Uh, I, it was like W-H-E-A-T-U-S had a song called Teenage Dirtbag and I forget who opened for them, but it was like a phase I went through my freshman year of college of liking Weezer and who else? It was just like either it was either Destiny's Child and um, Outcast, or it was these un- like nerdy kind of guys that sang with whiny voices. Yeah, Weezer. Okay, yeah. Bands like but Weezer. We just sounded too close to Weezer, and it was like I think one had to win out, but no, they had a completely different sound. But yeah, definitely look up Teenage Dirtbag if you want, because that was their their jam, and I went and bought tickets because they were singing that song, and I had a friend say. We've got to check them out. So I was like, okay, let's check them out. Now, the cool thing about Fiona Apple here in Los Angeles is that I'll just tie this to the comedy scene. You know, she was a kind of a regular at Largo when the original, cool. not to Brendan Splain Largo, but I've been Brendan Splaining lots of things. I might as well keep going. So in the, the new name of your podcast, yeah, Brendan Splaining with Brendan Smith. So in the mid nine in the mid nineties, this for people at home, there was a really incredible alternative comedy scene in Los Angeles that started at a little club called Largo on Fairfax between Beverly and Melrose. And Largo was the place where you would see the early alt comics like Dana Gould and Ginny Garofalo and Patton Oswalt. Very cool. But then they would also have musical guests. And the musical director at Largo was this guy, John Bryan, who produced uh, Fiona Apple's uh, second record, I think. And they were also a couple. So she was, if you were at Largo, there to see 
all these great alternative comics, there was a very strong possibility that you would see Fiona Apple just perform a song or two. Uh, and she was very much a part of that Largo scene and very tied to uh, the alternative scene here in Los Angeles. So every time I hear Fiona Apple, I'm taken back because I love it when music takes you back to a specific place. Mm-hmm. You know, I love when a song puts you back in a car on a road trip or puts you back in your dorm room or puts you back in your first apartment. Exactly. And you're just listening to music with your friends. And anytime I feel Fiona Apple, I'm just immediately transported back to LA in the mid nineties, which was a crazy time, but a really lovely time. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you have that memory. I was just on the show with Janine Garofalo. So I guess she's an East coaster now or has been for a while. I've, I've run into her on the comedy scene out here and it just hit me that, Oh yeah. When she was doing films, she probably lived in LA and did her stand up out there. Oh, well, she was, she was like basically like the, one of the pillars of the alternative comedy scene here. So let me ask you to that point, when you got to New York and you've done a little bit of stand up comedy in Indianapolis, Mm-hmm. What are your first moves there in the Big Apple to make it happen? Oh, I, well, it's funny because there were some seeds planted in Indianapolis. There was a manager at the time. I mean, he was um, an entry-level manager, I think, of, of entry-level talent. That, that was his specialty. Um had booked, helped me get a gig at Snickers Comedy Bar as a feature opening for Haywood Banks, who was famous for his song, Yeah, Toast, on Bob and Tom's show. So that was huge. I was like, I'm, I'm working alongside a celebrity in my very first year of stand-up. And so once I finished my year in Indy, I went to New York and he had said, call me. And so I did, and he took me to Caroline's and I saw Charlie Murphy perform, rest in peace. And it was a wonderful show. And, uh, and he was just saying like, you know, stick with me kid and I'll get you on these kind of stages. And he's like, just call me, do some mics, like get yourself, work out some material. And when you got material, call me. And I was like, so scared to leave my apartment in New York city that I would not hit up these mics. Cause I couldn't navigate the subway. First of all, like leaving, I was even afraid. And I don't think you can call it full on agoraphobia, but I was afraid to leave my apartment to put trash down the hall in the trash chute because I'd never seen a trash chute before. Something about it freaked me out. I was just like, <laughs> do people get stuck in these and die? It's like a tiny, <laughs> wow, it's a tiny thing. And I'd seen too many films about against New York, I think growing up. So I was just, and do you know that scene in big where he's a 13 year old boy, but he has to live in a man's body and he has no money. So he borrows money from like his friend's dad and he's, rents an apartment, but it's this really rundown motel. So when he's alone in this room with stains on the wall and a ugly cot, he hears like yelling through the wall and he curves up in a ball and he like, and he hears like, I think police siren. And so that was essentially my mindset. I was just like, all these sounds are different to me. I don't even know how to throw out my own trash here. Like what is this town? So when I wasn't having to like meet with that manager and be like, Hey, yeah, I love it here. Yeah, totally. I'll do some stand up. I was just like, I got to do stand up sometime, but I also have to get to the grocery store sometime. And I also have to, you know, make friends at some point, you know? So my first uh, few months in New York took a lot of like, I felt like a turtle in a shell. So I would like dip a toe out and take a train from two stops away and back and be really proud of myself. (laughs) And I had a giant subway map. They used to give you paper subway maps and I would always be like unfolding it huge. And like, I'm an adult now. (laughs) I'm reading the map. And so, so as a result, the, um, I finally hit the manager up probably six months later and he's like, I forgot you were even here. You know, like what the heck happened to you? (laughs) 
And luckily, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was also interested in becoming a professional stand-up comedian. So he was like, well, I'm going to a mic. I don't know if you're going, but, you know, he texts me like, time to go to the mic. And I would show up there with him. And so it really helped to have somebody there a buddy, I guess, just to, to feel like I was safe in this giant town. I didn't understand, but my, I missed out early on that opportunity, you know, where I was a big fish in a small pond in Indy and getting opportunities like right out the gate because I was charismatic and I wrote stuff, you know, uh, in New York is just a whole different ball game. But a few years later, I started to get work on my own and some paid opportunities and just kept at it. And so I did eventually get to leave my day job and make it a career, but it was not, through that help. Like eventually I surpassed, I don't even know if he's still doing that. Um, which is why I don't list his name, but he was a very helpful man. And I, and he believed in me and that was very valuable to me at the time. I just, I feel like I let him down because <laughs> I was like, Hey, I'm ready to perform. Remember me? He's like, no, I actually don't. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Where did you and uh, Luke meet? Luke Thayer is my husband. He and I met in Indianapolis. He's from, he's a Hoosier too. He wasn't, he's born in Missouri, so he doesn't claim Indiana, but he, he spent his formative years there. And we met on the open mic scene at Crackers Comedy Club. That is, uh, <laughs> that, that is. <laughs> you snooze, you lose kids. That, Let me just tell you. But that you, is but fantastic. I mean, isn't that crazy just to think that the two of you met at Crackers and now here you are. Wondering whether you should give your child, the child that you had together, a cookie <laughs> or, or an apple. Or a cracker. Isn't yeah. life weird? That's fantastic. Uh, there's a lot to it. Yeah, there's just so much. It's really nice to reflect and look back. Like even on your journey with music, you know, and I'm sure you probably play an instrument too, right? I sing. I can. You're a vocalist. I yeah. do. I can. I Every year for my birthday, well, I don't know what's going to happen this year, but every year for my birthday, I put together a cover band and I perform at a bar uh, in L.A., and oh, I, I, you know, I curate the list. I put uh, so many of my friends are musicians. I had Jason Orm from the Alanis Morissette band with me last year. Uh, he's an insane cool. guitar player. And, you know, we just played sort of classic punk rock and, and hard rock and, you know, had a great time, but uh, I, yeah, I don't, so you're a, I'm not a musician I, though. I'm not, I don't have that. You're a comedy writer, right? Is your yeah. main trade. I don't know what I am now. I honestly, well, I have passion. no idea what I am now. <laughs> That's what I love this phrase. It's the pandemic. Like people keep saying that. I'm like, I, I didn't eat dinner. I forgot dinner or I'm, you know, like I, I didn't take a shower until 4 PM and people are like, it's the pandemic. So I feel like, yeah, if you don't know your career, you're not supposed to right now. It's fine. You uh, could do whatever you want. I, 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 I am a, I am a jack of all trades and a master of none. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Now you inspired me because we've just been talking about some Gen X ladies with Abby Crutchfield, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, from an undisclosed location on the eastern seaboard. And you uh, inspired me to talk about one of my favorite ladies from this period of time. And that is Polly Jean P.J. Harvey. P.J. Harvey is an English musician, singer, and songwriter, primarily known as a vocalist and guitarist. Harvey is also proficient with a wide range of instruments. P.J. Harvey began her career in 1988 when she joined the Bristol band Atomic Dlamini as a vocalist, guitarist, and saxophone player. In 1991, she formed an eponymous trio called P.J. Harvey, and that group released two studio records, Dry in 1992 and Rid of Me in 1993. P.J. Harvey disbanded that trio, and since 1995, she has released nine studio records. My favorite is the 2000 release, Stories from the City and Stories from the Sea. I will just say this to you as someone who, of course, mocked 
the little affair when he was young because he was an asshole because he was just a a weirdo snobbo in the mid 90s pj harvey i love pj harvey because she just has a little bit more of that punk rock edge because that's what i like my yeah mia sarah from ferris bueller the silver lake version of mia sarah or i guess for you it would be the williamsburg version of mia sarah from ferris bueller that's that's what i'm drawn to pj harvey was silver lake dark hair dark eyes dark hair dark eyes purple stripe through the hair that's his (laughs) you know alcoholic father you know (laughs) that's your jam hoarder mom that's my jam (laughs) (laughs) you should that should be on your tinder profile (laughs) yeah yeah don't talk to me unless you have xyz does your dad enjoy happy hour every day give me a call yeah so pj harvey did you ever dip your toe into pj harvey no, I just looked her up so I could see what her face looks like. Um, and, you know, she's probably one of those artists that once I started listening to her, I would realize all the times in my life I've heard her before. But yeah, absolutely. But no, I can't name her right now. Yeah. To, and to me, PJ Harvey is very East Village, if you will. Cool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Let me ask a couple. Have you and your husband ever done comedy together? Uh, that's a dumb question, but I don't know the answer. Have you guys ever performed an act together? Uh, yes, I think for novelty New York shows, if it's like a couple's, he said, she said show, uh, he and I used to produce a comedy show for a decade in, in Brooklyn where we would both appear on stage, but we would pretty much take turns on the mic hosting or do sketch characters. And then I hosted a show on true TV called you can do better. And he appeared in an episode. So we try to work together when we can, obviously behind the scenes, we're helping each other punch up jokes. We're creating scripts together, you know, with each other in mind there's, so there's a lot of collaboration, but officially it's rare that you see us together. In fact, what I was going to plug, you'll next see me, um, is on Nowhere Comedy Club. It's a virtual show, so anybody can log in. Just tickets are available. I will post about them on Twitter, so follow me at Curly Comedy. On August 19th at 6 p.m., and Luke will be opening for me, and I will be performing a headlining set. So a longer version of comedy. Okay, so great. So that is a come on in and join via Zoom. How is that going to work? I think they do, yeah. They'll provide the link, and I do think it's a Zoom link. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I now perform on like Instagram and Twitch and Zoom, but this one I believe is Zoom. And the again, it's called the Nowhere Comedy Club, so Google them to find out how you can buy tickets. Fantastic. Now, what else is going on currently with you? I, I'm sure I know... You're always working on so many different things. It's just... When I met you, I think I was a a game show host at the time or a game show co-host. You were. And then... With, I think Michael Ian Black was a part of that. Michael Ian Black, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh That was how I finally got to meet him. But he had been a Twitter friend prior to that. So it's it's really cool to meet people that you've interacted with professionally through social profile. Oh, hell yeah. Um, So what else are you working on now? Uh, Let's see. What... I do a lot of voiceover. I'm able now to record from home. And so that is one part of the industry that hasn't slowed down too much. Um, I still do on-camera commercials. I'm always available for hosting opportunities. I've got some live performances coming up now in New York. They're starting to, and since the weather's nice, people are starting to do socially distant shows. So I will be bike riding to those. I'm not, I haven't taken the subway yet here. We're, we're back full circle to like me being afraid of riding the train again, but this time is for health reasons. Um, I do hear that it's, it's safe enough to ride the train. People are giving themselves the space they need and you can, you know, wear your mask and all that. So I don't want to, I don't want to spread fear to your followers. Uh, so yeah, a lot of live shows coming up and just waiting to see what kind of television opportunities pop up. That's been the slowest, obviously right. during the pandemic is cause like film sets and crews, work together and work closely together indoors usually. So it's, it's probably hard for a lot of production to continue. I was uh, just told 
that the new season of The Bachelorette is currently being filmed in Palm Springs at the La Quinta Resort, and they, mm. they took over the entire resort and basically created a bubble, and no one is allowed in or out of that bubble. I don't know if you watched The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I am a colossal fan. I sometimes appear on Art of Moraine's podcast. Will you accept this? <laughs> Are where we break this stuff down all the time, but that's how they are doing production. So no one goes in or right. out. And if you leave the bubble, then you're quarantined for 14 days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I know from other friends here, you know, all my friends are, so many of my friends are writing on shows. They're all doing writer's rooms on Zoom. And they're still trying to figure out how things are going to work on stage, on set. <laughs> exactly. There have been, there are still at late night shows providing submissions or, you know, like opening, being opened up for submissions, you know, whether they're hiring or not, they want to know what new talent's out there. So I love how in our industry, things are still moving forward. You know, they're just, yeah. oops, I bumped my mic. They're just kind of um, trudging forward and, and, and cautiously so. And, and I think that's appropriate, but no one has completely given up, you know, yeah. the biz. What was your first commercial? Do you ever, do you remember? Yes, it was Home Goods, which is they. I think it's owned by uh, like the people who own TJ Maxx and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I open a door and I pop my head in and I say, "Hi, home. I'm home." <laughs> I kind of play peekaboo with my house a little bit. I'm so excited at how it's decorated, and so it's that one line. But the hardest part about that commercial, <laughs> um, the one thing was the man who directed it. His name was David, and I can't remember his last name at the moment. But I had just seen, I recognized his name from MTV videos. So he had directed like a pink video. And so I was so excited to work with this director and he was very, very affable on set and great, very nice. But he got so impatient or irritated or as I perceived, because I had a mark to hit. They had the camera was up close on the doorway and I had to keep the door closed, stand over here, but open the door and appear right at the same height every time. Now, maybe today that would be very easy for me, but coming in, (laughs) it felt like rocket science. I was like, how am I supposed to know where our face was if I keep moving it away. And I didn't complain like this on set. I was just like, please get this right. Please get this right. Hi home. Too high. Oh, okay. Stop down. Turn the cameras off. Turn them back on. Hi home. Too low. Ah, crap. So much pressure just to get like one line out. <laughs> it was a great introduction to commercial and everything was fine on set, but I was just like sweating bullets. Like get this right. <laughs> or they will replace you. Well, you, you live to tell another tale. So that's the most important thing. That's incredible. Well, Abby, we have been talking for one out for 59 minutes and 48 seconds. Glorious. So it's time to say goodbye. Is there anything else that you want to promote or just tell the kids uh, where to find you? Uh, wash your hands, wear a mask, <laughs> possibly face shield. Uh, yeah. Definitely follow me on social. I like to do Instagram and Twitter at Curly Comedy. I have a TikTok account, but someone took that handle. So you can follow me there at Abby Crutchfield. I haven't really ticked or talked yet. Um, Wait, someone took curly comedy on TikTok? They did, but I don't even think they know me. I wish I was someone I knew. I think it was someone who did know you because it's a good name. It's a great brand. It's a. I want to see what they're doing with it. I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get my popcorn ready and watch this curly comedy. Um, And so uh, I post. Yeah, I post about shows there, flyers and things where, where you can see me live. But I also engage regularly with comedic content, as Brendan is well familiar with. So. uh so yeah, he and I will see each other online after this. Well, you are you you are such an amazing guest. It's so good to see you. I am so grateful to you for spending this time uh, here with me today uh, on this silly little 
Brendan Splaining podcast, a very special Brendan Splaining <laughs> episode of the Brando cast. Always a pleasure. I learn so much from you every time. Oh, I, I think teaching is in my DNA in the worst, in the bad way. It's a bad thing. <laughs> I have to, I have to get that knocked out of me. Um, is there any song I can play for you as we uh, say goodbye, as we go away? Do you really, uh, do you, well, uninvited comes to mind. Remember when Atlantis sang that song? Uninvited. It's, really, it's not upbeat, but it's That's it's okay. Haunting. So we're going to end the show with Uninvited. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for tuning in to the Brando cast. Remember, like, subscribe, especially on Apple. Share with your friends. We are growing exponentially. We've got so many great guests coming down the line. So until the next time, cats and kittens. But you